welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki. And you're listening to Talking Talkless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Rifki, have you gotten any feedback from last week's episode? Uh, yeah. So last week's episode, which is where we talked about um, both the whole immigration situation and the OU's particular uh, difficulty with the whole Jeff Sessions thing. Um, and I think I, I actually got a lot of good feedback. I was pretty nervous about that episode. But a friend of mine who actually... You know, she she wavers. Sometimes she a little bit leans a little bit more to my side. Sometimes she leans a little bit more to your side. She actually messaged me uh, after finishing this episode and said, for the first time, she completely agrees with me. Mm, okay. <laughs> I think normally she loves to give me really good, you know, very good feedback, but critique. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I was I was proud. I felt like I, I I made a case that I that I felt good about, and I was I was happy to hear that someone who doesn't always agree with me definitely saw the way that I was. I was okay, great. Things. Listen, Rifki, good for you. Like I don't, I personally don't see this as a competition. I think we're just trying to have a discussion and understand uh, no, the issues. A winner, but and well, I, just for the record, then I also got a bunch of feedback where people said they agreed with me. Well, look at you. Well, another thing that we mentioned in passing last time was the Maharat graduation. And that kind of brings us to today's topic, which is a panel that took place a couple weeks ago. And uh, Rifki, can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Two weeks ago, on June 12th, Hadar, which is an egalitarian yeshiva on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, kicked off their summer programming with a panel event entitled, What Feminist Torah Needs to Look Like? Or you were there, right? I was. Yeah, I only got to listen to the recording online. Uri, I'm actually curious. How many people were at this event? It was packed. Yeah? It was hosted at uh, Lincoln Square? So they actually had to move the location. I think Hadar is like right next door to um, Lincoln Square Synagogue. And they moved to Lincoln Square so that to accommodate more people. And then they kept bringing in more chairs. Wow. And then eventually people were just standing and sitting on the floor. That's so, really cool. Yeah, it was a few hundred people. Wow, that's, that's really cool to hear. The panel was hosted by Rabbi Aviva Richman, who's a faculty member at Hadar. And on the panel were three, I, I guess you'd call them Torah thinkers. Uh, Rabbi Tavora Zlachauer, who's the dean of Yeshiva Mahara, which had the graduation two weeks ago. Professor Judith Plaskow, who is a professor of religious studies at Manhattan College. And she's also the author of Standing Again at Sinai, Judaism from a Feminist Perspective, which is interesting. A bunch of the other panelists and Rev. Aviva Richman also talked about how that book had a profound effect on the way they thought about gender and religion and Torah. And Lainey Solomon, who is an adjunct faculty member at Hadar and director of educational initiatives and faculty member at Svaro, which is officially Svara, a traditionally radical yeshiva, which, Uri, I think that's the coolest name ever. Uh, the panelists, Provocative, for sure. Yeah, but like, that's awesome. The panelists took questions from one another and from the audience, and they addressed a couple of important topics, like um, how should we treat gender in the characters of the stories in the Talmud or the Torah? Uh, Is there a value in using the lens of gender? And how do you, meaning like how do the panelists, react when you are hurt by Torah or Jewish tradition? Obviously, especially related to gender things, uh, which I really liked because I thought that was like a really important question for people to uh, for people to deal with. So, Uri, I think the panel was pretty interesting, and I want to urge all of you listeners to check it out. We're obviously going to put a link in the show notes. So, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the panel and the topics. We're going to obviously play some clips, and we'll also expand on topics a little bit uh, to to really get the conversation flowing a little bit more. So or I guess let's start with this. The, the title of the panel or the premise of the panel was what feminist Torah needs to look like. I think in general, th- that, qu- that question or that, that topic is pretty provocative and pretty interesting. What do you, what do you think of the, the topic or the question? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. 
I, Ooh. First of all, I think it's interesting the way they phrase it. A lot of times with these type of discussions, just the way you phrase the topic already says a lot. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, so what does feminist Torah need to look like? I'm not sure I understand, and I even though I'm playing dumb a little bit because I know what the answer would be, but why does there need to be a feminist Torah? Why can't there just be Torah that includes everybody, including women, and let's talk about how to include women in the Torah or in the learning of Torah and the topic of Torah? What does it mean, feminist Torah? Torah. That's almost like saying there's the Torah and then there's something else called feminist Torah. Well, Hadar is a halachic institution and halachic values are very critical to Hadar. And I would imagine that when they say Torah, they very explicitly mean halacha. So when they say, the, the reason I, I think they said feminist Torah was w- what seems to me about using the term feminist Torah is that they're trying to intricately link the two. They're not asking, which I thought was really interesting. They're not asking, how do we balance feminism and Torah? They're saying, no, 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 no. We're saying there's something called feminist Torah. What does it look like? On the panel itself, when they talk about, when they define feminist, they seem to include a bunch of different minorities in feminists. They didn't want to limit the idea of feminism or feminist to uh, egalitarianism for women, to learning or practice for women. It basically used um, feminist and feminism as an umbrella term for all different types of minorities. Is that what you understood also, Uri? Well, so, I mean, I guess this is a good time for our weekly um, disclaimer. Um, I <laughs> We are not feminists. Well, no, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I don't know about <laughs> that. But very much feminist. I am not a woman. And so I'm talking, we're, we're talking about feminism, but that that is like, you know, important right. to say. But, well, I mean, speaking of disclaimers, though, also neither of us necessarily uh, affiliate or are holding in like the philosophy of a Hadar. So Hadar is the ones that hosted this event, and there were people from different places in the um, Jewish or halachic spectrum. But this is also a Hadar hosted event, so okay, I, but I think that's also important to yes. To and it, I think it's also uh, important to note. Well, I don't know how important, but one of the people on the panel, I don't know them personally, but from what I understand from reading their bio, was uh, Lainey Solomon, who does not identify as male or female. They are gender non non-binary. Mm-hmm. So to have Lainey on a panel about feminist Torah already seems to be either a contradiction or just broadening the, the definition of feminism. Right. And I think they, they explicitly tried to make it the second one. I think that's confusing. Honestly, like I, sometimes I feel like I'm so old school that I like get confused by some of these things. Um, but I think that is sort of confusing the idea of when I talk about feminism and maybe I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm like a little bit radical, but then in other ways I feel like I'm pretty traditional and I have trouble understanding what it means for, I mean, truth is, Did anyone, that bother you that they, that they no, brought I mean, in the, the definition of feminism? It seems very intersectional, which is yeah. all the rage these days. Well, there's nothing wrong with intersectionalism. If you're calling it, I'm intersecting X and Y. There's something difficult about intersectionalism when you're saying X and when you say, and by the way, X is really definitionally X plus Y. That's pretty confusing, I think. Right. I mean, to, to a certain be, extent, maybe it's semantics, but I think semantics can sometimes be important because you're defining terms. Right. I, I think they were just using it as a way of saying, including people who are traditionally marginalized. Right. And women that's are the most the obvious way group, Solomon. but then right, women are the most obvious group, but then obviously there's other types of people right. that are. They didn't really even get into gay people, but that would be another obvious right. example. 
And I think Lainey Solomon also explicitly talk about teaching queer Torah, which as a phrase is, is something that I think is, you know, similar to feminist Torah, maybe like a new phrase for us and kind of difficult to understand. But I think there's there's a lot there that I think is like pretty interesting and also pretty 21st century, which is kind of cool. I think what makes a lot of these questions so complicated is that as soon as you start thinking about or asking about some of these topics, it very quickly becomes about everything. And it's hard to even know where to start. It has to do with the origins of the Torah and halacha. It has to do with possible conflicts between Torah values and Western values. It has to do with conflicts between individuality and the rights of the individual versus the communal and the value of the community. And I think when we start when we talk about feminism and Judaism, a lot of these issues have to be addressed and these are very complicated issues that don't really have easy answers. So here is Rabbi Aviva Richman kind of introducing the topic. This is my central question for us this evening. What is the feminist Torah that brings us closer into relationship with Torah, with God? and with each other. That brings us deeper into our sense of obligation towards Torah, towards God, and towards each other. The possibility of failure towards these ends are easy to describe, while a picture of success is much harder to imagine. One of the things I thought was so cool about the way she framed that question is she started with saying sort of like, what is the feminist story that brings us into closer relationship with Torah, with God, with one another, which is like a pretty cool, interesting question and way of thinking about it in terms of relationship. But I also think it was even cooler that her follow-up question was, and also what brings us closer into our sense of obligation with God, with Torah, and with one another, that the way of framing is not just this sort of like a beautiful, meaningful, lovely sort of way of of thinking about things, but also becomes very practical when it talks about obligation. That's one of the things, you know, side note about Hadar that I think is so cool, that the learning does not stay in the Beit Midrash. It's very much sort of rooted in this sense, which is, I think, a very Jewish sense of obligation and taking things outside. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, so here's here in her introduction, here's a personal anecdote that I found to be pretty interesting. And I will jump ahead about 10 years from that day when I first put on tefillin, At 29, my first pregnancy ended abruptly, at 33 weeks, with a one-hour notice C-section. In the days that followed, trying to produce milk for my baby who could not yet digest formula, and trying to recover from surgery, I was shocked and pained at how distant the Torah and God I thought I had been so deeply in relationship with, through daily learning and prayer, had become, had become distant. I found that, I mean, first of all, it's very powerful, but I think it's, I found it also just very interesting because I think what she's saying is that when she had her baby, she felt distanced from her Torah learning because she was so busy taking care of the baby. I think that's the exact reason why in Jewish tradition, women are exempt from learning Torah and from time-bound commandments because the rabbis assume that women need to need to be busy taking care of the children so therefore they're not gonna we can't obligate them to do these things because they can't do both i'm not weighing in on the on the value of her learning torah or her putting on tefillin i just think it's interesting that she basically said the exact thing of that they had so that's interesting that was not my interpretation of what she said i mean that that is a possible read that and i I wish we could call her um that she was just literally too busy for these things my understanding was that it was more like she felt rooted in these texts both texts of prayer texts of 
um, halacha, texts of the Talmud, texts of the, the Bible itself, and used those as a way of framing her Judaism. But when it came to something that fundamentally changed her day and her life, she felt like she couldn't really look at those texts to speak to her current situation. And that's what made but her feel not? difficult or alienated. I guess because she didn't that's just elaborate not a big topic. All, you don't think the Jewish you look tradition the talks Aruch, about childbirth and raising children? Meaning the Shulchan Aruch doesn't talk about what do you do when um, you have Zman Kriyachma, but you also have a nursing baby, but you also have this. Like the, well, because halachically speaking, women are not obligated in time-bound commandments. I mean, well, that, that's... Meaning her interpretation, the Hadar interpretation of halacha is not that, right? Okay, she, so that's why I thought it was ironic that she's saying, I'm, I'm obligated to do these things, but I can't, and I feel so conflicted because I have my baby. So but I don't, that's the reason why I don't traditional think that's what Judaism... Actually saying, okay, though. I just found that ironic. Yeah, I understand. Feminist Torah fails when it settles with misalignment. Whether that means giving up on feminist truths and putting up with Torah that might hurt us, or giving up on parts of Torah. The fruit and the tree are of the same taste. We won't settle for wedding ceremonies with some aesthetic feminist touch-ups, and we won't give up on halachically sound ceremonies. We will insist that the Torah and halacha of intimacy and relationship can and must speak with integrity as we navigate new terrain in our understandings of gender and sexuality. So I think what she is basically saying, and this is Rabbi Aviva Richman, the moderator of the panel and tell me what you think Rifki but I think her philosophy basically is like you said she works at Hadar so she is halachic in her mind everything that she does Jewishly is within halacha and following halacha and she basically And that's the lens through which she views her choices. Right. So she's basically saying we not only can we have it all we must have it all. So at a at a religious wedding we can't just have some token feminist things. Like it has to be completely in line with our feminist ideology, but it also has to be completely in line with halacha. And so I guess she is saying that that's possible. Just to do a, a side note, it happens to be that um, I'm getting married in like a Muzzle month and time. a half. And this is something that has been uh, an issue that we've really been trying to figure out, mm-hmm. sort of how to balance these things. And it has not been so easy. Right. Maybe I should call uh, Aviva Richmond. You're right. Ask Maybe her what she, what she had in mind because she didn't get into specifics. And yeah. I'm not knocking what she said. I think that's a great goal to have. But the question is, is that really possible right. to, to have it all and do it all in that way? I actually think it's a very important part of this conversation, which I guess we haven't really mentioned yet. And we can mention it and then move on to the next clip, is that minhag, which I guess we would translate as tradition, is often treated equally to halacha so meaning like even if certain things and, and weddings are obviously very significant life events so i think it kind of is makes sense in a way but it's you know important to recognize that like at a jewish wedding even if something is not actual halacha it could still be minhag to do it a certain way and to a lot of people that should be treated right. equally to and a it halacha. also goes back to one of the things that you originally brought up which i think is so true and so important to remember is that judaism and uh, halacha has this constant push and pull between the communal and the individual right so i could say that something is much more meaningful to me to do x but if the community has made the choice to do y to the the extent that which i can pull away from the community and make my own choices is very difficult and can sometimes be considered radical even if in my mind i'm like this doesn't seem like it should be a big big deal deal. right Uh, but i think that's a very difficult and of course weddings 
you know, not just weddings, right? When you think about feminist Torah and, you know, let's just, you know, dive back into the panel itself. But when you think about feminist Torah, these things are really personal to people. This sort of idea and this this balance, especially when you think of someone like Rebani Devoris Lachauer, these things are can really be painful, uh, weddings and the wedding that you want can be painful, but also living with values and ideals that you think are so important and that you think make the world a better place and balancing things that you love and wholeheartedly believe in that sometimes can contradict each other can be a really painful place to live. Right. Well, let's listen to a clip from Devorah Zlachauer. A whole lot has happened in the Jewish community, including my little corner. Um, And it's both incredibly gratifying to see change that I never anticipated coming so very quickly. And yet, as we see some of these top layers peel away, the bedrock problems become even more apparent. So I found Rabbanit Zlachauer's tone throughout the event to be a little bit depressing. She was sort of the orthodox representative. And again, tell me if you disagree, but I, she said a lot of things along those lines, what we just heard, where basically these things are complicated because um, she identifies as orthodox and halachic, but she's also a feminist. And she's basically saying there are a lot of problems that don't have a foreseeable solution to them, and it just is what it is. So, Uri, I mean, I, I think I agree with you, but let me ask you, just you, Uri Westrich, okay? I imagine there are parts of the Torah, either parts of the, the Bible itself or the halacha that comes out of the Torah or the Talmud that you read and you're uncomfortable with. Let me say it differently. There is Torah that to you conflicts with the way you see the world. Does that ever happen? I think there are a lot of legitimate questions on all kinds of things in the Torah that's, that are morally challenging, yes. Okay. So, like, how do you deal with that? Okay. Well, I think... I and th- you could say you don't really have the answer, because it sounds like what Rabbi Slatchauer is saying is that she doesn't have the answer. Right. And I don't know that I have the answer, but I'm just wondering, like, I think this is something that we should right. all acknowledge, saying, I guess, right. that we feel. You I, know? Res- I have a lot of respect for her, and I think the fact that she's saying she doesn't have the answers does not in any way disprove her worldview or her philosophy or her approach. It's very honest of her to say that. I think these types of questions more broadly are part and parcel of Jewish tradition and go back as far back as Judaism goes, and you know, the Torah says eye for an eye, but the oral tradition and the Gemara, whatever, say that it's not literal. It means, you know, you give payment, you don't take out the person's eye. That's a pretty radical thing to say. But yeah, there's go back tons even earlier like to uh, to Abraham, Abraham fighting with God when God tells him to destroy stone and he he tries to like negotiate, you know, say, okay, well, what about this number right, of people? So right? Even in the Torah itself, there are examples. Yeah. yeah, so there's all kinds of things. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the the obligation to kill Amalek and to kill all the women, children, men, everybody, I'm sure that that was... I mean, I know that that's been difficult and that's something that people talk about for tons of generations. And I have no idea, but maybe even at the time when they were actually doing it, they were asking each other, why are we doing this? Well, we know that to be true, right? Because in the in the books of the prophets where uh, like King Saul held back, right? Because he had well, but, mercy. But he, he, right, but he gets punished for that. Sure, so but, but I think... The conflict was there even then. Right, the idea of sort of humanity Except he leaves the king, which is in our minds probably the right. first person so I guess this is like okay a whole killing. other uh, yeah. you know, discussion right. my point is that these types of moral dilemmas and questions are, are as old as Judaism itself and therefore I don't see it as problematic meaning 
I think we're encouraged to ask questions. Something that I always found so fascinating was that in college, I went to YU and I was exposed for the first time to academic Bible study. And you see all the like the questions that are raised by these scholars, many of whom aren't even Jewish and definitely don't believe in God, don't believe in the divine origin of the Torah. But a lot of the questions that they ask when it comes to like contradictions between different passages and sure. things like that are the exact same questions that are asked by Chazal right. and the rabbis. And obviously the answers are different, but I just thought that was so cool that like all of these questions that are asked by critics of the Torah and, tra- and Jewish tradition... They've been asked before by by devout religious Jews, and just the fact that those questions have already been asked and thought about, I think, is something that's very cool and Do about you think Judaism. That for you, like when you have trouble, maybe like theological trouble, understanding certain things that either certain mitzvot or certain things that are written in the Torah or in the halacha, when you have difficulty with that, does that give you a sense of comfort? Sort of like knowing that these questions have been asked by people who it doesn't cause them to sort of like doubt their faith or their practice? Um, It does give me comfort in thinking that you don't have to have all the questions answered in order to be Jewish and to live a Jewish life and to believe in the Torah. But I think I think everybody uses that in different ways. So meaning reform people also talk about the tradition of questioning and challenging right. in Judaism and they take it to their purposes and the Orthodox take it to their, in their way. So obviously that's a little bit of, it could be a dangerous uh path or a slippery slope to go down. And I think that's actually a perfect segue into our next clip from the panel. I'm Judith Plasco. I grew up in a classical reform congregation in which women were on the bima only to light candles Friday night. Uh, men did not cover their heads in our temple and a man who came in with a kippah would have been, been asked to remove it. But the rabbi was opposed to the ordination of women because it was against tradition. (laughs) That was my favorite line from the whole night. Because first of all, it was just funny and she delivered it well. But I think it's so profound what she's saying. I don't know. I found it really sad. I mean, we could bring it down, but I found it so sad because it seems like what she's really saying is that the reform shul in some ways was so progressive, right? It was it was trying to to, to be, you know, cool with the times. Men weren't wearing kippahs. It wasn't this like old school stodgy sort of religious thing. Not even were men not wearing kippahs. They weren't even really allowed allowed to to wear wear kippahs. And yet women were still sort of being quote unquote subjugated. The, right. the traditionalism that the reform movement chose to continue to associate with was misogyny. Right. Well, I mean, so I, I didn't mean to make light of it. I mean, everybody was laughing, so I think I'm allowed to laugh. <laughs> what a follower. All I'm saying is that what I think was so profound about it is that whether, the, so the rabbi said we can't allow women ordination because it goes against tradition. I think what he meant was it goes against Jewish tradition. And then the reason why that's funny is because of the hypocrisy right. there. Right. But I think what he really meant, maybe even subconsciously, is not that it goes against Jewish tradition. It goes against societal tradition. Because this was a number of decades ago when the just the general society was not typically comfortable with women in positions of leadership. But I think it's the reason why it's so profound is because it's so important, I think, when having this discussion to pull those two things apart, the Jewish part of it and then the general society part of it. And I guess that also just relates to how we look at 
any of the historical aspects of this, whether it's the Torah itself or the Gemara or the rabbis who came later, it's not fair to look at those texts without putting it into the context of their general society. I guess what was so surprising not knowing so much about the history of the reform movement, you would just would assume that since the reform movement wasn't bound by halacha, they should have had women rabbis from right. day two, you yeah. know? But they didn't because they were still right. bound by the culture. They were much the more comfortable eating non-kosher food right. and not keeping Shabbat and much less comfortable with having a woman giving a Dvar Torah. Right, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, sad. Here's a clip from the final panelist, Lainey Solomon, giving a different perspective on this topic. As a non-binary trans child, I never thought that I would be a grown-up because I never met a grown-up that looked like me. I never saw an adult who inhabited gender the way I did or moved through the world like me. I couldn't imagine who I would be, what I would look like, what my voice would sound like, the way I would walk around. Um, I simply didn't know that I could exist. The first time I met a non-binary trans teacher of Torah, I was 24 years old. I'm currently 27. <laughs> At Svara, the yeshiva where I teach and learn, a space in which we teach Talmud study as a radical spiritual practice that centers the experience of queer people, we often teach a text that's brought in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, which asks the question, what is a rabbi? Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav, Ein Moshivin Besanhedrin, Ella Misheyodea Litaherata Sheret Min HaTorah. Rav Yehuda said, that Rav said, we place on the Sanhedrin, the highest court, only one who knows how to purify a Sheretz, the creepy, crawly, impure thing, using Torah. In other words, the rabbiest of rabbis is someone who can be mitaher et hasheretz min ha-Torah. A requirement for rabbinic leadership, power, and authority <coughs> is to use the Torah to declare pure something that the Torah itself defines as fundamentally and unchangeably impure. Throughout so much of my life, I have felt like a sheretz. I have experienced my presence, the way I move in the world, in the Jewish community in particular, as a source of discomfort, <coughs> agitation, and even tuma. I have felt the questions I've asked, the ways in which I've tried to make Torah relevant to my own experience and life were a source of impurity, drawing out repulsion from those around me. I was something that folks felt they needed to fix, to make pure, to move away from, or to hide. So Uri, I, I've never learned that Gamar before and I thought it was pretty interesting. I think often when we think of feminists, we think of like male, female and changing the conversation to male, female, gender nonconforming, et cetera, is like a different conversation, especially different than the way that I ever think about it. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the reason why I think Lainey Solomon was the most radical person on the panel was because the first two are more, to me at least, clear of where they're coming from. So... Rabbanit Zlachauer is orthodox. So she has all these feminist values. She wants to make those work with her orthodox Judaism. Sometimes it doesn't, and that's a conflict, but we can live with conflicts in life. We're sophisticated people. Fine. And then you have Professor Plaskow, who is reform. So, I mean, she has it the easiest, I think, because she's not bound by 
Torah per se in terms of the letter of the law. She's he believes in the spirit and, and whatever, but it could be changed, it could be reconstructed, fine. Lainey Solomon seems to want it all, and it's not so clear from the clip we just played, but if you listen to the rest of it, they basically seem to be saying, we're gonna be halachic, we're gonna be feminist, we're gonna be inclusive to all gender identities, we're gonna do everything, and we're gonna be everything, and they don't express any sort of hesitation or conflict in the way that Zlachauer did. One of the phrases that Lainey Solomon used, which I think some either another panelist or someone someone asked about that, um, I don't think it was, a, it was a great answer, but I think it was a really important idea, is that they said that the Torah in some ways is infinitely subvertible. Yeah, I, the question that you raised for me, Lainey, actually, is, is the Torah infinitely subvertible, as you seem to suggest? <laughs> no biggie. Um, I think it's infinitely subvertible as much as we subvert it. Like, I don't think anything is, I think it's subvertible. The piece that I feel is meaningful about what Rav is saying is that this isn't just a fun activity, is to be mitaheret hasheretz, particularly in this iteration of this um, idea of taking something that's impure and making it pure. It actually is a, <coughs> I, I think, and I relate to this text as actually a fundamental human dignity issue. Um, and I think, I don't think there are limits there could be, but I don't <laughs> feel like there are limits actually to the power of human beings to subvert and create um, using Torah as a tool. There was some hesitation, but overall, I think they were basically saying... That's the saying, direction that Lainey Solomon was going in. Right, and I think what that approach is basically saying is like, everything is everything, and we can, we can be it all, and we can have it all, and do it all, and I think that's n a nice thought. It's very optimistic, but I don't know if that really works practically. I think one of the things that's so difficult in this conversation is because I think we're often sort of thinking of, or at least me, I don't want to speak for you, Uri, but coming from a background in thinking in the orthodox way of thinking, of, okay, so what does the halacha allow? How do we work this into a halacha conversation? Thinking about sources, thinking about working together the Talmud, with the Rishonim, with all these things. Sometimes I lose sight of the fundamental question of like, what does God want from me and from this world? And it seems like in some ways the panelists, and I think especially Lainey Solomon, which is what I found so powerful about what they were saying, was that was the fundamental uh, approach that they were taking, as opposed to the, in some ways, more limited orthodox approach of like, how do I balance X and Y? The, the, the lens through which Lainey Solomon was starting was, how do I create a better world through Torah? Well, there's so much more we could talk about and get into, but to wrap things up, I found the panel interesting. I think a lot of important questions were raised. Some of the questions were a little bit more compelling than the answers, but that's not really their fault. Yeah. It feels like that's kind of always what happens with panels. Right, that's how panels usually go. Um, I mean, a lot of times in life, the questions are better than the answers, but it's important to ask those questions and have the conversations. I just want to say that I believe that Judaism can be and is inclusive and that there shouldn't be anyone who wants to be part of the community who feels that they can't be. But I guess the challenge that they're all dealing with in different ways is how are we inclusive to all the people in our community while not compromising on our values and our tradition 
And then obviously different people have different ways of right. answering that. Yeah, Uri, I think I think that's really valuable and really important to think about. And I think, you know, just to, to wrap up, I think one of the things I think is so exciting about this panel and really so amazing, and I, I wish we saw really more of this in the Jewish community, was sort of seeing members of different denominations at different parts of the Jewish community who are all taking very seriously the idea of how God fits into their lives, the idea of how all of these things, uh, obligation fits into their lives and respecting one another's approaches in a way that I think we could all sort of model a little bit more. So I think in that way, even though I think you're right uh, that maybe the panel didn't get to enough answers, I think it raised really interesting and important questions and articulated them well. And I think also encouraged us to sort of look at different denominations with a little bit more respect and nuance when it comes to approaching and answering these questions. And that's our show. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget, if you are not yet a subscriber, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever you use to listen to podcasts, and just click that subscribe button. And of course, if you feel so inclined, please give us five stars. It helps other people find the show, and we would love to continue the conversation with you as well on our Facebook page and through email, TalkingTacosPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of our show, and they are also the premier film studio in New York City. Absolutely. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Cockless and they give us our theme song. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.